John 18, 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David. What we've been up to this fall is we're trying to wrap our heads around this uh, theme in the Bible that you see over and over referred to as the, the kingdom of God. It's a big concept, and so we've spent all fall trying to unpack it, and we'll do that again today, and we'll do it again next week, and then we'll, the issue will be settled, and we'll have it all figured out, and we'll move on. But, um, but we've been saying that when the Bible refers to God's kingdom, it's referring to God's rule, His reign. Uh, are, are, it's, in, in many ways, it's, um, it's God's solution. It's God's redemptive game plan of what he's going to do with a broken and, and damaged world, that he has come to redeem and to restore that which sin has broken. So our, our in-house definition we've been using each week is that the kingdom is the upside down, already not yet, surprisingly successful revolution of God making all things new. And you hear that and you think, okay, he's making all things new. He's redeeming and restoring that which is broken and destroyed. That sounds very lovely. And it is. And I want to try to show you this morning that it's also incredibly confrontational and threatening and challenging. And I want to do it from this passage that David just uh, wonderfully read for us. But the, the quick overview of the story, and I know we're kind of jumping right into the middle of John chapter 18. We're just launching into the middle 18th chapter of a, of a story. But the story is Jesus has just been arrested, and he's brought before the Roman governor, this guy named Pontius Pilate. And you can see in verse 33, Pilate asks Jesus, who would have been you know, bound up. He would have already been beaten up a little bit, a little bruised, a little bloody. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's trying to figure out, okay, are you a threat to Roman imperial power? Uh, What's your deal? Are you going to try to overthrow the government? Because there's this big mob around, you know, surrounding you. And uh, they have this back and forth exchange. And look at what Jesus says in verse 36. He says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom's not from the world. So I'm sure Pilate is a little bit, okay, he's relieved to know that it, Jesus is not forming a rebellion. There's not this insurrection that he's, he's uh, at the head of. 
But Jesus keeps using this language about his kingdom and my kingdom. And so Pilate's like, what, what, are you, what is that about? So we ask him in verse 37, okay, wait, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say I'm a king. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate's like, okay, I don't know what this dude is talking about. Uh, he's talking about the truth. He's obviously some, scholar, some, some you know, teacher, philosopher, something. But, he, but I know this for certain. Uh, he's not a threat. He's not going to try to overthrow the government. He's not fighting me. So Pilate comes to this conclusion. He, he exonerates him. In verse 38, he says, I, at the end of verse 38, you can see it there. He says, I find no guilt in him which is a way of, of him saying, okay, th th he doesn't pose a threat. What's the big deal? Why is he in chains in front of me? Now, Pilate uh, didn't know this, but uh, he didn't know how absolutely wrong he was, that Jesus does pose a threat. In fact, Jesus poses a threat to the very foundation of the Roman Empire, and he poses a threat to the entire way of understanding the world as Pilate even knows it. Jesus came to threaten and to challenge everything that Pilate understands, but Pilate can't see it. And he still does that today, that when Jesus comes with his kingdom, it is, um, it, it is a direct challenge to you and to me. And what I want to show you this morning is that that challenge, it's butting up against something very modern, and it's butting up against something very ancient. So those are the two big ideas I want to try to unpack with you, how the kingdom's challenge is both modern and ancient. Hopefully that will make sense by the time it's all said and done. What, what do I mean by the fact that the kingdom's challenge is modern? Well, if you think about our modern American context, there are, there, you, you could say there's two ends of the spectrum. On this end of the spectrum, you could say there are people that are traditional, religious, conservative Christians over here. And on this end of the spectrum, you people who are not religious, secular, um, progressive, liberal. I, I know that these two groups of people don't represent every person in America. A lot of people don't fit in these categories. That's not my point. My point is this is a big chunk of the people. And when Jesus uses this phrase in verse 36, when he says, my kingdom, those two words, those two words assume that there is a kingdom and they assume that it's his that he is at the center of it, my kingdom. And those two words directly challenge both of these groups. Here's what I mean. Let's take the first group first, because that's what makes sense. The first group, uh, traditional, religious, conservative Christians. Uh, this is a group of people that says, we, we like Jesus, we're pro-Jesus, we're into traditional family values, we like things like... Um, Church, we like worship, we like uh, prayer, we like the Bible, we like uh, books and podcasts and ideas, we like that. And people in this group tend to um, have their faith be uh, pardoned off from the rest of the world. So this is what's really important to me is my relationship with Jesus. What I'm less interested in is talking about poverty I don't want to talk about gun control. I don't want to talk about the environment. Don't say the word systemic racism. Definitely don't want to talk about that. Uh, in other words, this is a group of people that wants the king, but they don't want the kingdom. 
I recently reread Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter, famous letter that he wrote, which is now called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And if you haven't read it, it's amazing. You can read the whole thing online. It's, it's, it's not that long. But the story is in 1963, he was in Birmingham, Alabama. He went down there with, his, uh, with one of his organizations to form a nonviolent protest to draw attention to the fact that there were some pretty egregious injustices happening in society. And he expected the southern white church that was there to support him. Because they're like, yeah, what you're doing is drawing attention to something that needs to be drawn attention to. But um, he gets arrested. The, the, you know, the protest gets shut down. He gets thrown in jail. And not only did the bulk of the white church not support him, they criticized him. They said, well, you know, it's not Christian to just go into a city that's not yours and to raise a big stink and to cause this big scene and to oppose the law. That's not Christian. Furthermore, the Christian gospel is really only about your relationship with God. It doesn't have anything to say about civil rights. You got your categories confused. So he's sitting in prison, sitting in jail, and he um, has hours and hours on his hands, and so he writes this letter as a Christian pastor to other Christian pastors. And, and this letter was basically a way of him saying, hey, fellas, um, uh, we um, worship a king who uh, doesn't just care about our souls, but cares about our bodies. He cares about our lives, the way that we live life now. If you're going to take your faith and, and quarantine it off from society, it's this privatized, individualized, me and Jesus kind of a deal, that's not Christian. That was his big critique, and I think he's right. Because Jesus doesn't say, I'm just a king, but he says, I came to bring my kingdom. And it's not just this ethereal thing where I'm going to suck souls away to this cloud in the sky called heaven. My agenda is to bring God's will so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means for his kingdom, for this revolution. And what that does is if you find yourself in this category, it butts up against and it pushes you outside of this privatized, individualized, me and Jesus sort of thing. And it pushes you out into, okay, well, how do I think about politics? How do I think about justice? How do I think about the criminal justice system? How do I think about education? How do I think about the arts? How do I think about the, the needs of our city? And for some of us, that's very uncomfortable. In fact, you may be sitting here thinking, I don't like this. I'm offended by this. I'm triggered by this. This guy up here doesn't know what he's talking about. And that may be true, but I do think the discomfort that you may be feeling is a good thing because that may mean that you're actually having to wrestle with Jesus on his terms because he says, my kingdom. So you see how that, that presses, it challenges uh, our modern American context of conservative religious Christians on this side, but the flip side is also true. Jesus also challenges this side, secular, non-religious um, progressive types, people who would say, I don't believe in God, certainly don't <laughs> consider myself a Christian, but I do deeply value uh, inclusion and justice and equality and love. And uh, Jesus has something to say to this group as well, because he doesn't just say uh, a kingdom. He says, it's my kingdom, because this group wants the vision of Jesus' kingdom, but without the king. This group wants the king without the kingdom. This group wants the kingdom without the king. And Jesus says, it's 
my kingdom, which is a way of saying you cannot enjoy the fruits and the benefits of the kingdom of, that includes equality and love and justice and diversity unless it's connected to me, unless I'm the king that is at the center of it as God in the flesh. So think this out with me real quick. We'll get philosophical for a second. Here in Midtown, people in Midtown are passionate about justice. They are passionate about uh, uh, defending the rights of the marginalized, about protecting the poor and the vulnerable, passionate about uh, equality, passionate about standing against racism and oppress oppression. In other words, we should love one another. And those are beautiful things. I hope you believe those things. But here's the question. On what basis do you believe those things? If you believe in equality and inclusion and justice and love, what reason do you have for believing that? Because if you live in a world in which there is no God and we're all here just by random chance, then what basis do you have to conclude we have a moral obligation to protect and defend the vulnerable and the weak, that we should love one another? Why should we believe that? Think of it like this. I put a um, quote at the beginning of your bulletin by a Russian philosopher, a guy named Vladimir Solovyev, and he says this, man descended from apes by a process of the strong eating the weak, therefore we must love one another. I mean, he's being sarcastic. He's, he's poking fun at the fact that these two ideas don't, they, they're, not, they're not compatible. It makes no sense to say we live in a world in which there is no God, and the only reason why anyone's here is through this violent process called natural selection where you have the strong eating the weak. If that's true, it doesn't make any sense to therefore say we should defend and protect the weak. That's how we got here was by the weak being trampled on. His point is these two ideas don't make sense, but if you believe that God created all people in his image, then of course it makes sense to believe those things. Of course it makes sense to pursue justice and equality and care for the poor and protecting other people because to be made in God's image means it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter how you live your life. Because you're a human being, you are worthy of dignity and respect and protection. It makes perfect sense in a world in which there is a God that created people. Think of it like this. I, I recently uh, came across this story in the news, and it made me think of this idea. Um, it has to do with the, the, the news involving um, the worldwide phenomenon of Quidditch. You know, um, uh, uh, J.K. Rowling invented you know, the Harry Potter universe, and the characters of that universe play a sport that she invented called Quidditch, where they're on broomsticks, and they fly around, and they hit a quaffle and they chase for the snitch and all the things. And uh, I, I didn't, I, well, I guess I, I knew this. I still don't understand how this is possible, but somebody came along and figured out a way where human beings in real life can play that game with each other. And so there's teams, there's tournaments, there's leagues, there's Quidditch leagues. I've never played it. I don't understand how it works if you're not flying on a broomstick, but apparently this is a thing. And in recent years, J.K. Rowling has come under, you know, pretty intense scrutiny because of some of her views in the world. She's made some controversial statements, and so there's been this backlash against her. And so the, the organizing governing body of the Worldwide Quidditch Association made a decision earlier this year that they were going to change the name of Quidditch. 
They didn't want to be associated with J.K. Rowling anymore. They, they wanted some distance from her, so they changed the name of Quidditch to Quadball. That's the, that's the name. You can look. You can go play Quadball now. But they're out there, and they're chasing the snitch, and they're hitting the quaffle around. They're using the beaters and all the things. But you see the, um, you see the problem with that. The challenge is, okay, so you, you've, you've changed the name because you want to distance yourself from the creator of the sport. But you're still playing her sport. You're still playing her game. And you can do the same thing with God. You can say, I, I want to distance myself from the creator. I, I don't want to be associated with him, but I want to enjoy equality. I want to enjoy inclusion. I want to enjoy uh, diversity and love. But don't you see, you're, you're playing his sport. These things only make sense as it flows out of him and his kingdom. A lot of people say, and I understand why they would say it, that Christianity is it's the enemy of inclusion. It's the enemy of, of, of equality between men and women. It's the, it's, the, it's the enemy of justice. And yet, I think if you, if you think it through, you actually see it's the basis for those things. So don't you see how when Jesus says, uh, my, my kingdom, it, it challenges and it threatens and it, and it presses up against you. In fact, you may be sitting here and you're saying, okay, I feel uncomfortable with this. I'm offended by this. I don't believe these things. This, is, uh, this guy up there doesn't know what he's talking about. Again, you, you're probably right. But also, if you're feeling uncomfortable, I think that's a good thing. Because you may be having to do business with Jesus on his terms. When he says, my kingdom, when he says, my, he's challenging the irreligious people of our modern day that want the kingdom without the king. And when he says, kingdom, He's challenging the conservative Christians of our day that want the king but without the kingdom. Don't you see, this is why his kingdom doesn't fit into any of our categories. This is why it makes sense why in verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is otherworldly, and it challenges all of our worldly conceptions of it. So the kingdom's challenge is it is modern, but secondly, it's also ancient, it butts up against something in us in a very modern way, but also butts up against something in us in a very ancient way. Here's what I mean by that. There's a, there's a story that another pastor came up with, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. He, this is just kind of like a made-up parable of his. I'm just going to give you my version of his story. But the story goes like this. One day there's a father who takes his young son to a toy store just weeks before Christmas. And they go in there, and the son is all excited and just, wow, look at all this stuff. And the, and the father takes him over to this display and says, hey, son, do you see this huge train set, how awesome it is and how beautiful and bright and cool it is? How would you like to have that for Christmas? And the kid goes, oh, golly gee, would I? That sounds neat. And then they go over to the next aisle, and the, the dad says, wow, you see this over here? This is, a, this is called a PS5. We can play Fortnite together. You don't just have to watch me play it. I, you, we can play it together. And the, uh, the kid says, wow, gee, willikers. That would be, that would be real swell. And uh, then they go uh, to the next aisle, and there's this massive Lego display. And the father says, look at this amazing Lego set. Uh, look, how, wouldn't this be amazing if you had that? And the, the kid says, oh, jeepers, that would be, that'd be so nifty. And, and so they go around the store for half an hour, 
And uh, at the end, the father uh, says, okay, now that we've seen all this fun stuff that you can get for Christmas, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know you're not going to get any of it. I'm not going to get any of this for you for Christmas. Now let's head on home. And his point in telling that story is that that is how every fallen human heart thinks about God. You are not good. You just want to show us all the amazing stuff that could be ours, and then you want to withhold it from us. You are not good. You don't care about us. So we say, God, okay, you, you're almighty God. You have the power to make my life happier, more comfortable, less painful, less suffering. You, you could do that, but you're not. What does that say about you then? Or here's this really hard, painful, excruciating thing that has come into my life, and, and I don't know why, and you could take it away, but you're not, which either means you don't care about me or you're not there. And so we have, this, we have this, this disposition towards God. He is not good. And that disposition, that belief, it is not modern. It is not unique to us. It is ancient. It goes all the way back to the beginning. If you go all the way back to the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. And God takes them and, and shows them everything that the garden and the world has to offer. And he says, you can eat any of this stuff. It is all available. It is all for you. You can have any of it. Eat, drink, be merry. It's all for you. One exception to that rule. Don't eat that one tree. Off limits, everything else, yours. Look how generous. And, of course, the serpent comes in and says, okay, wait. God is withholding from you. He is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat that tree because he knows that if you do, you'll be happy. And if you're going to have any happiness in this life, any fullness, if you want to experience life and joy, you've got to get out from under this tyrant. Do it on your terms. And we ate the tree. And that lie dropped in and it settled into the bottom of every fallen human heart. So now we look at God and we really do believe in the back of our mind, okay, he's not good. And if I'm going to experience any joy in this life, any happiness in this life, I've got to do it apart from him. I've got to get away from him. So some people get to a certain point and they just punt the faith, just walk away from the church altogether because it really is, okay, if I'm going to experience joy, it's not going to be at church. It's not going to be following Jesus. There's no joy there. Or people still show up at church and still follow Jesus, but they do it begrudgingly. They, they, they only... They only obey when it fits into how they would naturally want to live their life anyway. Because deep down, we really do believe that God's not good. But look at how Jesus' kingdom confronts that ancient lie. Look at verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. You know what he's saying? He says, if my kingdom were just like every other kingdom on the planet, my followers, my friends, they would have weapons in their hand and they would be fighting to the bitter death to make sure that I'm not handed over to my accusers. But the reason why they're not fighting is because that's the very reason I came, was to be handed over to my accusers. And in fact, you see this play out in the very next scene. If you look at verse 39... There's this amazing scene that unfolds where once a year there was this custom where the, where the, the Roman imperial empire would um, 
allow somebody at Passover, they would allow somebody from their jails, from their prisons to be released and to be exonerated. I, I, I dug all over the internet trying to figure out why in the world this custom existed. Why, why, how did this come to be? And I, I couldn't figure out. I don't know why. But for some reason, there was a way for the for Roman government to kind of throw the people of Israel a bone and say, okay, we're sorry that we're oppressing you. So here's a, you know, once a year gift. And so they would just release somebody and it's Passover time and here's Jesus. And so Pilate's standing in front of this crowd and he says, hey, remember that custom thing? This is a great idea. This is a, Jesus is a perfect candidate for me to release to y'all because he's innocent. I don't find any guilt in him. Why don't we release him? Win-win. And the crowds shout, no, we don't want Jesus released. We want Barabbas released. And you find out in verse 40 that Barabbas was a robber, which doesn't really mean like, I mean, it seems like a little strange he would be on death row for being a robber. But you find out in other gospels, he was also an insurrectionist and a murderer, all around notorious bad dude. And if you keep reading into John chapter 19, this exchange takes place where the guilty, violent, murderer, monster gets released, exonerated. You are free to go. And the innocent, sinless, falsely accused one, he gets thrown into the shackles, he gets beaten up, and he eventually gets executed. And that little picture, that is a snapshot of what Jesus came to do, that he came to give of himself. He volunteered to sacrifice his, his very body, his self, his life for the guilty. Now, we hear stories about people sacrificing for other people all the time, and we love it. It's on, it's on all of our movies. It's in all of our stories where the hero gives themselves for somebody who's vulnerable, you think of the Hunger Games, where Katniss Everdeen stands up and volunteers herself as tribute to take the place of her little sister, Prim. She steps in, and little Prim is protected by this heroic act, this brave act. You think of Harry Potter and Lily. Oh, we love Lily. Lily steps in between uh, Voldemort and his killing curse uh, to protect her little baby, Harry. And she receives the blow and she dies to protect this little vulnerable infant. You see these stories and we love these stories because you see how brave these characters are, how valiant they are, how good they are. Here is Jesus who is doing that very thing, but he's not just doing it for the vulnerable. He's doing it for the guilty. Who in the world would love and choose to give of their very being for someone who is guilty, someone like Barabbas, someone like me, someone like you, when you begin to do the math on this, you begin to say, okay, wait, this is bravery on a whole other level. This is goodness on a whole other level. This is, this is, the, this is what totally deconstructs whatever this belief is inside of me that says that God is bad. God wants me to be miserable. God doesn't care about me. When you look at the cross and you see the links that God himself was willing to go to in order to free and liberate and forgive and give life to guilty people, it checks the lie. It shows that it's a distortion. It shows that it's not true. He is infinitely good, infinitely generous, infinitely kind and loving and merciful that he would do this for people like us. 
When you begin to see that, here's where the rubber hits the road. Here's why this matters. You can go through this life and experience pain and loss and suffering, and it triggers, it activates these thoughts. God's not good. God doesn't care about me. God's not real. When you look at the cross, though, and you see the pain and the loss and the suffering that he was willing to go through for you and for me and for Barabbas, you begin to say, okay, it can't be because he's not good. It can't be because he doesn't care about me. I don't know why he would allow suffering in my life like this, but I can know for certain it's not because he's bad. It's not because he doesn't love me. Look at the cross. The cross is what proves to me. It shouts to me that he loves me. How could he not? Look what he's given up for me. You have supernatural resources when you look at the cross and you let it get inside of your bones to know that even though you live in a world that doesn't make sense, even though you live in a world where all the evidence seems to be communicating, he's not good, he's not for you, you know it's all a lie. He is good. He does care about you. He is loving. Look at what he's done for you. The kingdom challenges us. It rattles us. It shakes us. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the kingdom doesn't shake us in the way that a, um, in a way to harm us, in a way to hurt us, in a way to make us feel pain. It's, it's, more, like, um, it's more like a family that's on vacation, on this amazing, exotic, expensive vacation, and there's a teenager in the family who is asleep and dead to the world as teenagers are wont to do, and they will sleep till 4 p.m. unless you do something about it. And so a very loving parent comes along and shakes them and says, hey, wake up, sweetie. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to sleep through the vacation. Wake up. The kingdom comes, and it's offensive at times. It challenges us. It shakes us. It rattles us. Let it challenge you. Let it rattle you. Let it shake you. It is your good father who is trying to wake you up to participate in a kingdom and to have a king that is infinitely better and more glorious than you ever dreamed or thought or imagined. Let the challenge of the kingdom wake you up. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anything that I said this morning that is false, that is out of accord with your heart, I pray that you would forgive me. I pray that you would have these folks uh, forget it. And Father, what I've said, if any of it is true, I pray that you would have the goodness and the challenge of your kingdom disrupt us and open up our eyes to see a king in a kingdom that is, that is so much better, that is so category-busting, that is so much more expansive than maybe the small little boxes we've tried to put you in. Sweep us up into this kingdom and overthrow our hearts so that we might be freshly delight, we might freshly delight in a king that is this good, in this loving, in this brave. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.